When Jesus was born in Bethlehem, was that the start of his existence, or was he an eternal part of the Trinity? What is the Trinity, and why is it important to understand it? Hi, I'm Yvonne Pran with Bible 805, where you learn to know, trust, and apply the Bible. These questions and more we'll answer in our lesson today entitled, What the Gospels Tell Us About the Trinity, Why It Isn't Difficult, But Extremely Important to Understand. What happened when Jesus was born in Bethlehem? A common misconception people have, even without thinking about it, is that Jesus' birth in Bethlehem was the start of his existence, that he was born like any other human, lived a life of love and service that we should all emulate, and died a tragic death. In this lesson, we'll look at why that view is completely false, and that Jesus was not created when he came into the world. Instead, he was incarnated, the second person of the eternal trinity, as the Apostle John tells us, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Being incarnated means Jesus existed before his earthly life as part of the Trinity from all eternity and permanently took on flesh and blood at his birth. All four of the Gospels recognize the importance of establishing this fact early on as each of them gives an account of his baptism. Jesus' baptism is considered one of the primary illustrations or proofs of the Trinity, and you'll see why shortly. In this lesson, we're going to look at his baptism And then we'll go into an explanation of the Trinity, what many people consider one of the most difficult theological concepts, but (laughs) that is a view I totally disagree with. God does not intentionally confuse us as to who he is because he desires a relationship with us. The challenge to understanding the Trinity is the same challenge of understanding everything else about our faith. We need to look at God's Word, which I'll help you do, and not simply accept statements of, oh, this is a mystery that I can't understand. In addition to what's in God's Word, the Lord has given us teachers in the church, such as Tertullian, one of the early church fathers, who have clearly clarified this doctrine for us. We're going to look at his teaching his words in just a few minutes. Understanding the Trinity is important because not only is an understanding of the Trinity important to our personal faith, but the Trinity is one of the key differences between Christianity and the cults that are distorted interpretations of the Christian faith, such as the Mormon Church and Jehovah Witnesses, in addition to various non-Christian religions, such as Islam. All of these have a distorted view of the Trinity, most often centering on a false identity of Jesus. Mormons believe that Jesus is the physical Son of God. Jehovah Witnesses believe that Jesus was created by God the Father and is not equal to him. The Muslims, the followers of Islam, believe Jesus is a prophet, but not God himself. None of them doubt or deny that Jesus existed. It's impossible to do that with the amount of verified history about him. But they do not believe Jesus is God in the same way the Father is God and and a part of the eternal trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They say he's either a lesser God, a created being, an exalted human, or simply a revered prophet. Very wise, perhaps, but less than the eternal God. All of these views do not 
agree with what the Bible teaches about Jesus. This is also a common and popular misconception of Jesus today, that he was a good man, a holy man, a great example, but not God. But that is not enough. Who do you say I am? is the most important question anyone can answer when Jesus asks that. And only Peter's response is the correct one, where he said, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Now, the problem understanding the Trinity isn't only with other religions, because most Christians don't understand the Trinity, which is why it's hard for them to spot problems with other religions' views of it. And if we can't explain it to ourselves or people who ask us about it, these doubts can lead to other doubts about our faith. But the lesson today will clarify the correct doctrine of the Trinity and help you to know and understand more fully the God who created you, redeemed you, and loves you throughout all eternity. Now, here's how we're going to do this. First, we'll establish that the Bible consistently teaches that our God is a trinity, three persons, one God. We'll start with evidence of all this in the four Gospels as shown by the baptism of Jesus. Then we'll look at one of the most common misunderstandings of the Trinity today, and following that, we'll look at a correct view of it using terms defined by Tertullian, the theologian who coined the word Trinity. Now, (laughs) some people will immediately say, no, the word Trinity is not in the Bible. Nor is the word Bible in the Bible, nor is the word Christianity in the Bible. There are many words we use to properly explain biblical concepts that are not precisely in the Bible, but that are biblically correct. Just as reading many Bible passages helps us identify what makes a Christian, so too looking at many passages in the Bible about the Trinity will help us define it. So let's get started. Now, evidence for the Trinity in the New Testament starts out with a very early one in the baptism of Jesus. Matthew 3, 16 and 17 says, When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Jesus' baptism is described in a similar way in Mark 1, Luke 3, and John 1. It is foundational to identifying who and what he is. Now, what's important for you to note is that all three members of the Trinity are there. With the Father speaking, the Spirit descending like a dove to empower Jesus for ministry, and Jesus being baptized. All members of the Trinity are united in the initiation of Jesus' earthly ministry, and they all prefigure their roles in it. The New Testament continues with many references to the separate and unified work of God the Father, God the Son, Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit, which we're going to talk about. Well, what about the Old Testament, people might say? Is Jesus' baptism the first appearance of the Trinity? If Jesus is the Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament, where was he then? Though we primarily think of God the Father when we think about the Old Testament, in reality, 
The teaching of the Trinity is throughout the Old Testament. Now, here's some verses about it in the Old Testament. It starts out with Genesis 1.1, where it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What is important here is the word God is in the plural format, Elohim. Also, it goes on to say in Genesis 1.26, and then God, again, Elohim, the plural form, said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us, where God is clearly speaking as a plurality of persons. People looking for the Trinity in the Old Testament get really excited about these two verses because they use the plural term for God. But what about then the Shema? The statement that seems to clearly state that there's only one God. Well, let's look at it. The Shema says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. This is from Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. At first reading, it's hard to see any evidence of the Trinity in that particular passage, and many use this verse to deny the existence of the Trinity. However, when you look at the Hebrew word for God in this verse, it's the same plural word, Elohim, used in Genesis for God. And in fact, the word Elohim is used for God 2,600 times. That's 2,600 times in the Old Testament. It's used that way in every single book in many, many settings. You can go to the Blue Letter Bible and look up any one of these verses, and then you look up other verses that use it in the same way, and they will list all 2,600 for you. In reality, the Old Testament, from the first book to the last chapter, consistently, in the use of the plural term for God, Elohim, affirms the existence of the Trinity. The use of that word alone doesn't answer all the questions about the Trinity in the Old Testament. And I've done another lesson focusing solely on the Trinity in the Old Testament. And you can look that up on Bible 805 or on the YouTube channel or the podcast or any one of these things. Um, Again, the title of that particular lesson is the Trinity in the Old Testament. In brief, just what that particular lesson discusses is that the many appearances of what is called the angel of the Lord are in fact appearances of the pre-incarnate Christ. The Holy Spirit's mentioned throughout the Old Testament also. However, he's not given on a continuing basis to individuals, but only given off and on to empower them for specific tasks. Now, knowing that the Trinity is affirmed extensively, consistently, in both the Old and New Testaments, that's one thing, and that's good, but that doesn't help us understand it. (laughs) How can we explain three persons, one God? We're going to look at that next, and again, when you really understand it, it isn't difficult to understand. First of all, though, we're going to talk about a false understanding of it. It's an incorrect explanation of the Trinity, and that is a belief of what's called modalism. It uh, Many popular descriptions of the Trinity go something like this. It's like ice, water, or steam, or one person being a, a husband, a father, and a son. Now, they're all wrong because they 
talk about one entity, either water or that particular person, in three various modes. Again, ice, water, steam, or husband, father, son. The theological definition of modalism, again, which is an incorrect belief, it is the, quote, unorthodox belief that God is one person who has revealed himself in three forms or modes, in contrast to the Trinitarian doctrine, where God is one being eternally existing in three persons. According to modalism, during the incarnation, Jesus was simply God acting in one mode or role, and the Holy Spirit at Pentecost was God acting in a different mode. Thus, God does not exist as a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit at the same time. Rather, He is one person and has merely manifested Himself in these three modes at various times. This is not what the Trinity is. The correct teaching of the Trinity is one God in three eternal coexistent means they exist at the same time persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Modalism was refuted by the church father Tertullian, was condemned as heresy by Dionysius, the Bishop of Rome, and by a number of the early church councils. Modalism, one being in three different forms, doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't make sense if you just simply look at the baptism of Jesus. That's why I started with it, because you obviously have three different distinct beings at the same time. Jesus is being baptized. The Spirit descends like a dove. The Father speaks from heaven. Modalism is illustrated in some charts in your, um, in your notes. And um, again, the various analogies that people try to use, like steam, you know, like ice cube and water and steam, they're, they're just all wrong. And I have some classic illustrations for you in the notes that will help you understand that. Now, the reason that it's so essential to understand the true nature of the Trinity is if we don't properly understand the Trinity, we don't properly understand who Jesus is or have a true understanding of our salvation. In one of uh, my systematic theology books, um, here's how they talk about it. It says, modalism ultimately loses the heart of the doctrine of the atonement. That is, the idea that God sent his son as a substitutionary sacrifice, and that the son bore the wrath of God in our place, and that the father, representing the interests of the Trinity, saw the suffering of Christ and was satisfied. Also, without properly understanding the Trinity of the different persons in it, love has no meaning. The I-thou necessity of love. You have to have two beings to love one another. Um, and if God is love, it's because the Trinity is a relationship of three beings who from all eternity have mutually loved one another. Um, as some people have said, the Trinity is the original small group. Many of the statements, situations in the New Testament, Jesus' baptism, his praying to the Father, the Spirit strengthening him, these all become illogical statements without understanding the Trinity. Seeing that modalism is incorrect, though, here is a true explanation of the Trinity. And this came from the church father, Tertullian. And here is what he, and I'll share with you in just a minute what he said. He was a brilliant Roman lawyer prior to becoming a Christian. And he then became a leader in the church. And he helped define many things. As a result of his study and response to what he believed were false views of the Trinity, he coined the term 
Trinity, and he defined it as una substantia tres personae, one substance, three persons. Now, I created a chart for you. This is something, please, if you're listening to the podcast or even just watching the video, go to the www.bible805.com website and download this. It will help you so much. I have a free copy of it. You can make as many copies as you want, give it away, whatever. But this clearly shows we have one God, and then down one side of the chart, I have the, the substance, the attributes of God. God is eternal. He's love. He's truth. He's all-knowing. He's everywhere. He's all-powerful. He's immutable and merciful. And then on the other side, the three persons, they, all, they have all of these attributes, all of the, the same substance, but we have God the Father, God the Son, and God, the Holy Spirit. Three persons equally sharing in the attributes, eternally coexisting. Now, Tertullian separated substance and personhood because you can have a trinity of anything that has similar characteristics or that works together. You can have a group of three chairs, a government with three parts, a trio, a group of three people singing together. These are all a trinity, but what makes the Trinity unique is its substantia, its substance, the attributes of it, not just that it has three parts. Only the Trinity of God has the substance of eternality, omnipotence, total truth, immutability, and that substance, those attributes are shared equally and eternally by each member of the Trinity. Now, God's substance sets apart the three persons of the Trinity, but the big question now is, what does it mean to be a person? A person is not just a force, an influence, a rock, a solar object, a myth. Personhood is defined as the distinct personality of an individual regarded as a persisting entity. Personhood is more than form. And this is really important for us to keep that in mind because God the Father and the Holy Spirit are persons, but they do not have physical forms or limits. Your personhood is what makes you, you. And that will be the you that will exist throughout all changes in this body in and throughout all eternity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are persons, and now we'll see how the Bible describes each one that supports this statement. We'll look at defining the characteristics of personhood for each person of the Trinity. These aren't mystical ideas. They're tangible characteristics we'll talk about for each member of the Trinity. We'll talk about how they have relationships with other persons, how they have an intellect, how they have emotions, and how they have a will. And I must admit that when I first studied this, it was kind of surprising to me because I thought of Jesus as a person, and but God the Father, and especially the Holy Spirit, thinking about them as persons, it wasn't really something that I understood until I studied it. And I hope that what I'm going to share in a few minutes will give you additional insight to it also. So let's look at each one of them. God the Father. He engages in personal relationships. And what I'm going to do is make that statement and then the verse that goes with it. Where in John 3.35 it says, The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Intellect, in Matthew 6.8 it tells us, Don't be like them, for your Father knows exactly what you need even before you ask him. 
Emotions. In Psalm 86, 15, it says, But you, O Lord, are God of compassion and mercy, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. And a will. In Matthew 12, 50, it says, For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So we see God, God the Father has these characteristics. And then God the Son. God the Son engages in personal relationships with God and people. As John eleven forty one and 42 says, Jesus raised his eyes to heaven and prayed, Father, I'm grateful that you've listened to me, and I know you always do listen. But on account of this crowd standing here, I've spoken so that they might believe that you sent me. He has an intellect, of course, <laughs> but... Anyway, just going through these verses, in John 2, 24 and 25, it said, But Jesus didn't trust him, because he knew all about people. No one needed to tell him about human nature, for he knew what was in each person's heart. And emotions. Matthew nine thirty six in the message, it said, He taught in their meeting places, reported kingdom news, and healed their diseased bodies, healed their bruised and hurt lives. When he looked out over the crowds, his heart broke. And also, too, John eleven thirty five, how Jesus wept. And in John thirteen one, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them until the end. And then, of course, his will, which he made subject to the Father's will. In Luke twenty two forty two says, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. God, this Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit engages in personal relationships. In Acts 8.29, the Holy Spirit said to Philip, Go over and walk along beside the carriage. Intellect. Romans 8.27, where it says, And the Father, who knows all hearts, knows what the Spirit is saying, for the Spirit pleads for us believers in harmony with God's own will. Emotions in Isaiah 63.10, where it says, But they rebelled against him and grieved his Holy Spirit, so he became their enemy and fought against them. And then in Ephesians 4.30, it reminds us, And do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. Remember, he has identified you as his own, guaranteeing that you will be saved on the day of redemption. And he has a will. Um, in 1 Corinthians twelve eleven, it says, It is the one and only Spirit who distributes all these gifts. He alone decides which gift each person should have. Now, the relationships, with the, relationships in the Trinity, with Jesus interacting with the Father, they know each other. No one knows the Son the way the Father does, nor the Father the way the Son does. They love each other. The Father loves His Son and has put everything into His hands. They speak to each other. Then after the successful sending out of the seventy, He was filled with joy of the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, for hiding these things from the intellectuals and worldly wise and for revealing them to those who are trusting as little children. Yes, thank you, Father, for that is the way you wanted it. The Holy Spirit was continuously involved in the life of Jesus. From his conception, the angel replied, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby born to you will be holy, and he will be called the Son of God. In his temptation, it says, Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit 
into the wilderness, his ministries. Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and news of him went out through all the surrounding region. And then in Acts 10.38 it says, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Then Jesus went around doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him and his resurrection. But the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, if the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. In their interactions, each person of the Trinity has a different role. The theological term when discussing these roles is the economic trinity. The term economic in the term economic trinity comes from the Greek word akoinomania, which means literally household management. It is the term that describes the different roles that the members of the Trinity have while all working towards the same goals. Now here's how it works out in our salvation. God the Father initiates, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. God the Son, Jesus, accomplishes the work of salvation. John, 1 John 2, 2 says, He, Jesus, is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And then in Titus 3, it tells us that God, the Holy Spirit, regenerates and renews us. According to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. And they do it all together in perfect love, harmony, deferring to one another when appropriate, working to glorify each other, all examples for how we should work together. And just some final comments and um, just sort of based on what I just talked about. I wonder if part of our problem in understanding the Trinity is a challenge of understanding the relationships within the Trinity because they're so unlike anything that we've experienced. In the Trinity, we have three persons, totally loving towards one another, submitting to the will of each other, united in purpose, in constant communication with each other, and so expansive in their love that they created and welcomed humanity into it. It is totally astounding and hard to believe that we know it is true, not only as a doctrine for us to understand, but an example for us to follow in how we relate to others. And in response, maybe we become more like the Trinity in our relationships to each other as we grow in our knowledge of and in our personal relationships with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's all for now. Please check out the show notes and other materials at www.bible805.com. There's so much, uh, particularly in this lesson, the uh, downloadable charts, the infographics, all of those things that will help you a lot. Until next time, I'm Yvonne Prynne, your fellow pilgrim, writer, and teacher for Jesus. And I'd like to close with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wandering to rest, from loneliness to knowing you are loved, from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are on your spiritual journey to a growing knowledge of God's Word and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, 
and Holy Spirit. Amen.